Man, if this ever is legal, I'm opening up my own store. Welcome to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. This time, I talked to somebody in the cannabis game. His name is Casey Cornolia, and he is the owner and general manager and founder of Farmhouse Wellness, Grand Rapids, Michigan's only locally owned and operated dispensary. Now, it's far from the only dispensary, but it's the only one where all the money stays right here in town. Why is it the only one? Well, Casey has a <laughs> amazing story that involves, as he calls it, quote, shithouse luck. It's a great story, and he's going to tell you all about the things that they have planned in the future, including growing their own cannabis, having some of maybe their own strains that you won't find at other places, and uh, all that kind of cool stuff. And you'll see what kind of community stuff they get into. Part of the reason why I love this place so much is because they you, you can see that they're giving back to the community. The area looks much nicer now that they're there. They're giving out food to people on the holidays. They're really community involved, and, uh, and I dig it. That's what you get when you get local cannabis. So if you are ever in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, and you feel like uh, smoking some cannabis, or eating some cannabis, or whatever some cannabis, check them out. Farmhouse Wellness. They're at 831 Wealthy Street, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and you can also find these guys online on Facebook and on Instagram, both of them at Farmhouse Wellness, and that's farm with a PH, Farmhouse Wellness, at Farmhouse Wellness on Facebook, at Farmhouse Wellness on Instagram, and at www.farmhousewellness.com. That's all in the show notes. You don't have to remember it right now. Let's just go ahead and get right to the interview because it was a really fun one, and uh I think you'll enjoy getting to know the man behind the, the cannabis. <laughs> All right, folks, here's the interview with Case Coronolia, owner, founder, general manager of Farmhouse Wellness in Grand Rapids. small business owners in our family. So my grandpa and his dad and my dad were all small business owners in different parts of the country, but a lot of years here in Grand Rapids. And for my earlier years, I was born in Alaska. Pull that up just a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah no worries. Like half that distance you got. There you go. Yeah. My earlier years, I was born in Alaska uh, and grew up. Uh, oh, so you're actually from Alaska. As yeah, far as born, where, where you there. entered the world, yep. yeah. Kind of a mixed bag. You know, I was born there, and then our family had a commercial fishing boat where we fished for salmon. Oh, okay. So that was a small business that, you know, our family ran. And Alaska is one of the first states to uh, decriminalize and, and make cannabis accessible to individuals. And I believe that was back in 96. So, oh, wow. Um, 
the small village that we lived in a lot of it's just very difficult to get stuff in and out of you know people grew their own their own products both from vegetables uh and then of course cannabis you know yeah. so some of the well I've, the f- I've heard even now um if you go to a dispensary there or even just a grocery store there you're gonna pay noticeably more than you would here in like say a midwestern city like Grand rapids michigan yeah absolutely the price of milk is more expensive cigarettes anything i mean it just costs money to ship it in or fly it in or whatever so that was really the first time that i that i was exposed to cannabis not really um participating in it but seeing it in some of the the greenhouses and yeah. indoor grows in in rural alaska and that was just kind of you know just planted a little su- you know uh subliminal seed in, was in the back of my head and easy to get some like if you if you knew the right people if you're from the area yeah yeah i think that if you were of age and and um cool with, cool with the folks that were growing you could you could get it um I was young at the time, so I wasn't, you know, smoking or consuming it, but I definitely saw, you know, some of the older people doing it and participating. And so, um, yeah, man, that was kind of, I guess my first like exposure to cannabis. Um, and then our family, we, we uprooted and we moved from the West coast, uh, here to the Grand Rapids area. You know, Pops got back into the family business, which was the funeral industry. Oh. And so those those were interesting there's, years. We, there's kind of a macabre <laughs> connection there between like, yeah, packing in fish and then you're packing in people. Yeah. Yeah. Killing fish and then dealing with uh, with dead bodies. So a little, you know, everything's on ice, man. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was interesting. But Pops is just. He's a provider. He's always wanted to do whatever it takes to provide for the family. And I, I feel a lot of the same qualities myself. So yeah, our family uprooted and we came here to West Michigan. And my dad is from Ottawa Hills. He went to Ottawa Hills High School and our family had a uh, manufacturing plant down on Burton and, and Kalamazoo uh, called Perfected Grave Vaults. And uh, we manufactured the, the grave vaults that people that caskets go in oh, yeah, and, yeah. and then that grave vault goes into the into the grounds. And then uh, they also did cremation work, you know, for uh the the funeral industry you know cream cremation versus um being buried so yeah i used to rent a place that was only like a block or two away from where they actually did the cremations and you'd always see the when you saw the dark smoke you're like oh yep. rest <laughs> in peace bud <laughs> yeah you see some smoke rolling by and and you know there's one in the oven but uh but yeah man so i mean uh we that's kind of the, the rundown on the family As an adolescent, I, I just, uh, my brother was three years older than me. So yeah. I was in, um, I think I was in ninth grade, you know, in the first summer of eighth grade or beginning of ninth grade. And he was a senior. I was a freshman. You always want to look up to your, you know, you look up to your older brother. You always want to be cool like them. And yeah. he was going to the the parties and was, was cool with all the the jocks and, and all the different people. Um, yeah, we had a friend whose brother was you know, really cool. And he was yeah, like four or five years older than us. And we'd always look at his guitar world and his high times. Yup. 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 So they, so he had access to it, you know, when I was, um, you know, when I was a young buck and, and I had gotten it from my brother and that was the first time that, that I was, ex, um, you know, really started smoking pot and, 
um, just kind of fell in love with it from there. And, and, um, like you say, I mean, that was 1999, 2000 area, you know, sometime around then. And the laws just weren't, you know, weren't favorable at all for cannabis. We didn't get medical cannabis in Michigan, as you know, until 2008. So there was that period where even then, even then it was pretty limited. I drove like almost 30 minutes to a, a dispensary and Maybe every fifth time I'd go there, the guy's like, I got raided last night. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was the beginning of the caregiver era. That wasn't really the beginning of the commercial framework in Michigan, which, you know, didn't come until 2016, 2017. Yeah. Cause there was that huge wave of dispensaries, especially downtown, mm-hmm. which I think is why it pissed off so many politicians where you just saw neon marijuana leaves in the windows of all these places and they're Mm -hmm. like all right i don't think so and then all of a sudden you just saw those places one by one just going away yep it really it really depended on the city that they were operating in the the local municipality the district attorney whoever was calling the shots in that area and some some cities were more prolific and and were willing to uh, accommodate those those facilities like lansing or ann arbor and Mm. And there was quite a little robust scene going on in those cities, but Grand Rapids was very much not that way. And it was, it was prohibitive here, but going back to 2000 era, it was super prohibitive. And I mean, any little bit of pot could land you in a big amount of trouble, but, um, but I knew that, that I loved it. I loved the plant and was always fascinated with, with growing cannabis. So kind of from the early years, I started to smoke it, but I realized that if I could, buy a bag and, and, and chunk off a couple of quarters or eights to my homies, then I could smoke for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was really the beginning, man. You know, that was, uh, just trying to, trying to, to smoke, smoke my own and, and smoke cheap, you know, smoke on the cheap. So I'd usually, uh, try to source an ounce or, you know, a half ounce or something. Um, and then I had, you know, my friends that they would buy eights along the way. And, and at the end, if I did it all right, I'd have a free eighth or maybe make 20 or 50 bucks off the deal. And, yeah. <laughs> and for a ninth grader, you know, that was, that was, I was making it, you know, I was doing it. So, um, that's a great introduction to business. <laughs> it I mean, was, yeah, a little bit, you know, I mean, it wasn't above board at the time, but as far as the lessons you can learn from that, because that's essentially what business is finding a place where you can get it, finding people that are willing to pay a certain amount for it and then take the profit. Right. Yeah. For, for the amount of risk, I don't know that it's, uh, you know, at the time it was probably the, the, you know, when you factor in the risk is for the reward, but (laughs) you know, it was just part of the culture, man. I mean, we were just, uh, I didn't really care. I was definitely a little bit naive. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that's how I kind of got started. And then from there we'd find bag seed and different, uh, kind herb, you know, along the way. And, and I started saying, okay, well, you know, I can get an ounce from the plug or, or dude, maybe I can just grow this shit my own, you know? So started to plant some bag seed of various different kind herb that, that we found along the way. And, and uh, started to experiment with some outdoor plants. And, and I was going to say, where did you get seeds from? Like, you know, left over in a bag or the guy that you bought them from was like, yeah, you're interested in seeds. Here you go. Did you buy them out of a out of like a high times? Because I know they've been selling, you know, quote, novelty seeds for a long time. Right. 
Yeah, I I never really we tried to do some mail order stuff for Mark Emery like back in the day and just this like, you know, Mark Emery's getting busted and he's out of Canada and getting extradited and like it's just we never even end up you had to do a money order and send it to Canada and wait like four weeks <laughs> and like be super paranoid. We never ended up getting any seeds. Uh, we, we just got screwed, you know, from the deal. But yeah. for me, I just um, we were smoking on different herb throughout those years. But a lot of it, you know, was was Mexican herb, you know, stuff that came up in packs and, you know, compressed brick weed. And that was full of seeds. You know, the seeds yeah. didn't weren't that that viable or high. Um uh, high potency, but, uh, some of the kind herb that we would get from time to time did have a, a stray seed or two. So that was really where, um, where I was able to find some decent seeds. Um, and then sometimes, you know, one of my, my brother's buddies would say, Hey man, here's some, you know, here's some good seeds and throw these in the ground and see what happens. But it was right around 2000 that I, I did my first, you know, first legit garden, I would say. And it was, and at that time, did you, read a lot were you watching videos like at what was your uh were you helping other people and kind of getting uh advice along the go from that or a little bit of a mixed bag yeah it was whatever i i mean these were like the aol days you know dial up modem <laughs> yeah, yeah, internet yeah. stuff was super sketchy i can't remember if it was wait 20 minutes for a flowering tea recipe yeah you up. got your floppy <laughs> disk you know you're plugging it in there trying to download recipes and stuff and and so I, I just pieced together information that I could get off the internet, a uh, little bit of High Times magazine stuff that was out there. Um, I think there were a couple grow Bibles or grow books, you know, that were available at the time. And then um, just some knowledge that I had had uh, playing around in the, the family garden. You know, yeah. my mom always had a really good green thumb and she always had a vegetable garden and flower garden behind the house. And, and when I was younger, I would go back there and help her and and you know, just knew a couple things from, from that. So it was, uh, it's a pretty good crossover. You know, I, I've grown a little bit of my own, but, uh, I've grown cucumbers and, um, tomatoes and a couple little, little fruits and stuff like that. And a lot of, a lot of the, um, principles apply, you know, you feed it certain things when it's growing, you feed it certain things when it's flowering or fruiting and, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, it's, it's, uh, growing, it takes a lot of love and compassion and whether you're growing vegetables or cut flowers or cannabis, it's all the same principles apply. The, the environment may be different. The genetics may be different, but, mm-hmm. um, plant physiology is, is the same across different, different cultivars. So, um, so yeah, man, we, we, uh, but at that time it was kind of sketchy. Our outdoor plants were always getting found by somebody. It was like, there were helicopters. (laughs) It was, you know, we never were really that successful at, at, uh, outdoor crops. I remember some of the very first ones I had like a, a really heavily wooded patch behind our house. And I went and I constructed this, you know, it was a four by four little, uh, thing out of wood. And I brought a tarp back there and every, in the summer, every day I'd go out there at seven o'clock in the morning and untarp it. And then at seven o'clock at night, I'd put the tarp back on and, and got these little CO2, um, canisters that we would put in our, our, either our BB guns or our paintball guns. And, like I'd crack those and throw them in there, you know, for a little bit of CO2 supplement. So it was super backwoods, you know, super, yeah. uh, 
super, you know, gorilla style or whatever, if you want to call it that. And, and it just didn't get much sunlight and the wood, the buds were super sparse and, yeah, yeah. and there wasn't much to them, but it was a little introduction, you know, it was, it was really cool to see some plants come together and, and, and have some, uh, bud formation on them. But it's one of those plants you don't even trim. You just take everything. Yeah. And my buddies are all just stoked on it. We're yeah. all like, yeah, yeah. You know, you got, got some free herb. We'd probably throw it in the microwave to dry it and just do all the wrong, all the wrong things. But but yeah, so that was kind of like our very first, my very first, um, uh, intro to growing cannabis and ended up like at that time, there's a, a small grow store that was, that was really underground. It's called grow code and they still have a spot off Michigan street right yeah. now, but they were the first grow store in grand rapids and they were on on wealthy street um on the east side of wealthy it was like you had to drive around the back and like go downstairs and and you know you you like wanted to go in somebody else's car and then get in another car and go home and and uh and just to get the grow supplies but i ended up doing a a, a couple thousand watt indoor grow and um and that was one of the very first, you know, indoor gardens that we had and, and grew more pot than, than we could figure out what to do with. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, that was, that was through high school. That was right around 2000 and 2000, 2003 era. And were you doing, um, like more traditional, just kind of like watering potted plants? Did you have a hydroponic thing going on? that first indoor was actually a flood and drain hydro system. So it was, it was two 1000 watt bulbs. I still remember it was split spectrum. We had a HPS and a metal halide over a flood and drain system. And, uh, you know, you have your reservoir underneath. It's got a pump. It floods the table. They were in Rockwell cubes. Um, and yeah, for, for a beginner grower, um, looking back on it now, it was, it was pretty complex, a little bit more, um, complex than I, I probably would have, you know, recommend somebody to start with Rockwell's just, I think one of the, one of the more difficult, um, it, it's more fine tuned, you know, it, it's kind of like driving a, a race car versus driving a, you know, a, a Ford Pinto or something, you know, <laughs> sure, like sure. it's, it's, uh, you can go off the rails pretty quick in Rockwell. Um, so so yeah, that was, uh, Oh, Oh, 2000 through Oh three. And then, um, and then I took a break, man. I went to college. Did some traveling. And then ended up coming back to Grand Rapids. What, what did you study in college? Started with environmental science and then, um, you know, I've always just been good at numbers. I kind of dabbled in accounting a little bit. And then, um, so I had like a basic associate's degree. I was also studying, like I studied all types of stuff. I was, it took me like eight, like six years to finish. So oh, what did it take me? Yeah. About six years to finish a four year degree. And, um, but been there I, by the way, yeah. <laughs> hospitality school of business management too. realized worked in resorts and realized that was a super tough go and, and, uh, not a lot of money in it. So it's funny though. Cause it seems like there's some things you could obviously draw from all of those now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, I'm thankful. Even though, I don't know, maybe did you have an idea? Cause I, 
I know we've all been sitting around, you know, passing a bull around. <sighs> and people, man, if this ever is legal, I'm opening up my own store. But how many <laughs> people actually did, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's I I don't know that the the shop Farmhouse Wellness would have come to fruition had it not been for just the various different stepping stones that happen along the way. But, um, but with that, you know, just in school and realizing that hospitality wasn't my jam and, and being good at numbers, I'd end up, um, strangely enough, landing on, on finance, man. And, uh, finance and econ, it was a, a degree that I got. Um, I had some basics from, from Western Washington where I was studying. And then I got into a pretty bad ski accident in 2007 and, um, broke my back skiing and oh, geez. yeah, it was pretty gnarly. You look, like you look like you're doing pretty well now, but at the time that must've been, Oh God. So where, like what, what actually where along your back was the, the, the injury here, the main thing. It's the T12 through the L4. So it's the bottom of your thoracic a section through the fourth um, can lumbar. Say, can you say that in English or just yeah, point to yeah, it? Yeah, the lower back, bro. Lower the lower back. back. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The lower back. And uh, it was a compression burst fracture. And I broke my right, I blew out my right orbital bone, oh. um, punctured a lung, broke some ribs. It was a really, really serious accident Damn. in the backcountry of Washington. And, um, I was just laid up, man. You know I mean? They, they fused my, my vertebrae back together and I was in a hospital in Seattle and, oh. and, uh, th there was just no way I could take care of myself anymore. And, and, and my, my stint, my life in, in Western Washington came to an end, you know, and, and my family's like, we just, you know, you got to come home. So you got to come back to, to Michigan. And I did, and I came back in a full body brace, you know, looking like, Looking like, uh, I don't know, whatever, yeah, parent, you know, just imagine getting a phone call, your kids all the way across the country and they are fucked up. Yeah, it was weird. Ooh. My mom had like this, this, uh, intuition or, you know, mother's intuition. And she actually called my cell phone when I was like in complete shock on the side of a, you know, on the side of a hill, uh, at Mount Baker ski area in Western Washington. And, oh yeah. And my actually buddy, been out that way a little bit, yeah, Not to ski, but super pretty, really yeah. beautiful area. Um, but anyway, so, um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a life altering event and it changed the trajectory of, of what I was doing, came back to, to Grand Valley and, uh, finished up there with a degree in, in, uh, business and, and finance. And then ended up, uh, just, you know, it's the height of the great recession in 2008 and just went to, um, just went to, uh, to get a job, you know, try to start paying the bills and pay yeah, off yeah. my loans and everything and end up going into banking and getting a job in banking. So it was, it was, uh, and was your now wife in, in the equation at the time for how much of this stuff or did she, you guys meet like at school after school? No, no, we didn't meet during college. It was, so that was right. So 2008 was right around the time this, uh, you know, MMMP Michigan medical marijuana program, uh, was enacted. And so and she met you post that terrible accident, which mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but it sounds like that definitely changed your, uh, your outlook and your perspective and maybe your drive a little bit. Yeah, for sure. No, I was living very, you know, carefree in, in Western Washington, didn't have a pot to piss in, was, um, 
you know, but, but then got into a pretty serious accident and, and, um, it definitely, you know, you realize you're not invincible anymore when you're young like that and you get into a serious accident. Yeah. Cause you said what, 20, 21, something like that. I was 21. 21 yeah. I was yeah. 21 yeah. when I got in the ski accident in 2007. So, so yeah, rolled back here to West Michigan, uh, realized that cannabis was legal in 2008 for, for caregiving and for medical marijuana. So immediately applied for a license to grow my own. And then, um, that just kind of those, those old years came back into play of, okay, you know, I, I grew some herb myself and, 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 and that, it, that whole process, sorry to cut you off again, but that whole process of being able to grow is pretty similar to what you go through now to be a, a, a patient, to be able to get medical it's just a different set of forms and stuff that you got to fill out or does somebody like come and like uh, look at where you're growing and say, okay, you got to have this, this. No, back then it was, it was, I think a little bit more strict. You could definitely seek out different doctors or different license uh, places, but because of my spinal fusion and all my medical records and all that stuff, I had no problem. I just went into the doctor and said, look, man, I got, you know, chronic pain and chronic arthritis in my back. And he's, mm. you know, no problem. They wrote me a script and I sent it off to the state and became a patient myself. And then, um, from there it just kind of evolved, you know, it evolved into, um, I was growing my own herb and then I'd put it out there. I'd share it with somebody and they said, Oh, this is pretty good. You know, would you, consider being my caregiver or whatever. And then I would sign them up to caregive for them, you know, and, and grow herb for them. And, uh, within the, the caregiver program, you can have five patients plus yourself. So, and that's 12 plants per patient, right? Yep. 12 plants per patient. And then if you're a patient yourself, that's 72 plants. And, and that's, that's the law now. That's currently the law, although they are at looking at was, changing it. Yeah. At one time it was 12 patients per caregiver, wasn't it? No, I'm not familiar with that. I, I, I thought it was always five plus yourself. Oh, um, okay. Maybe you're just getting a mix up with the plant count being 12, maybe. you know, 12 per person. But you could do 72 and some people were stacking it with multiple 72s, but I always just did 72 and and um, and did that, you know, did that from 2008 to 2020 when, when we opened the shop. So it was it was. Um, it was a stretch of about 10, 10 plus years where I was growing ganja on the side. And then, you know, at night I was growing ganja. And then in the morning I'd wake up and put on, you know, khakis or a suit or whatever, <laughs> depending on the period and, and go in and work at a bank. That was, uh, you know, what I considered a, a grind, you know, it was, it was, uh, basically I was buying different houses and I'd set up a grow room. And then when it got too hot, I'd break it down and go buy another house or go rent another house <laughs> and, and build another grow room. And then when I got too paranoid or felt like it was time to move, we'd buy a different place. And we did that over like four or five different how grow houses from, you know, 2008 to 2000 and, uh, roughly 18, you know, 19, um, and, and I just was like, dude, this is just wearing on me. You know, I, I, I didn't think that that was the, the future for me. So yeah, just, uh, started to really start to think serious about trying to make a change and, and that, do something that, different. That jog that I was going to say too, is even now, um, having been like more publicly vocal about my su overall support for cannabis. Um, I know people who are kind of like, Hey man, you kind of need to chill on that. You don't want your kids like <laughs> parents, you know, your kids, friends, parents to know, like 
Yeah. Just thinking about like, you know, I was growing at night and then I was putting on khakis during the day. Uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you have any hangups uh, as far as I'm guessing probably not as far as what you do, like how your kids, friends, parents are going to be like, Oh, friends with the marijuana people or anything like that. A little bit, man. I'm trying to shirk that, trying to brush that off. Because yeah, we definitely come from like, if you listen to Tom Segura, he talks about like, we would risk getting murdered just because (laughs) we heard like so-and-so knows a guy who can get you a really good bag. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I just think that West Michigan's pretty conservative area. You know, it's, it's a pretty conservative region and, um, being half the people that are like, don't tell anybody, but I smoke weed. Like, Uh, Oh yeah. Let's just be adults about it because everybody's drinking. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. I'm not throwing Uh, shade on people who drink either. I'm just saying one's, I think drinking has a a more bummer effect on the people that do it <laughs> in public settings than people who eat or smoke or whatever. Yeah. Yep. No doubt. It's, it's just, uh, um, I think that, that people, a lot more people, like you say, consume it than you would imagine. And, um, and there, there is still some stigma on it, but I, I believe in cannabis. I love cannabis. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to be. You in, have a, a legit qualifying condition. I had somebody told me, told me that my qualifying condition for a medical card wasn't legit, even though they're not a doctor, <laughs> because I had an injury when I was stationed overseas in Iraq and I didn't get blown up or shot or anything like that. It was just a like a repetitive use injury. And basically my ankle just kind of started giving out and I started getting tendonitis in the back of my leg. I've rolled this ankle. I don't even know how many times I've lost some muscle around the knee on this leg. My hips always, it's just, you know, sorry to hear that chronic pain and inflammation. And they're like, that's kind of, kind of weak, man. It's for people that like broke their backs or people that have cancer. It's like, no man, it's for people that don't want to live on ice bags and ibuprofen either. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I feel your pain, dude. And I've seen it. I mean, my wife has, has Crohn's disease. Severe Ooh, yeah. That's another Crohn's one disease. that really helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It was through the, you know, kind of getting back to, to her into the equation. It was through the, the, the medical caregiving system that I was introduced to, to my wife and, um, Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I started to caregive for a gentleman, um, in 2009 and what's his name uh, on social (laughs) really cool guy though really cool guy and he, he changed the the course of my life by introducing me to his daughter you know and that was he's he was cool guy and he said uh one time you know i came through and he's like you know uh would you uh would you be interested in like you know coming around and meet meeting meeting megan meeting my daughter and and uh, so he kind of gave me the green light a little bit there, and 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 dude was cool, you know. Uh, pop and ended up becoming so that my father. The question: Were you good at growing cannabis? You must have been pretty good if the guy's like, dude, this is so good. I'm gonna introduce you to my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yup, yup, exactly. He gave me the green light, and then uh, we started dating. You know, sometime around. 20, 2010 and and we were married in in 2015 so that was um but it was because of cannabis that uh in the caregiver program that i that i met her father who um you know and then eventually met her and, and we got married and now have have two kids 
One one brand new, by the way, which we talked about before the show, but he's got a little baby at home, so congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, so it's it's you know, cannabis works in mysterious ways, and I do think that it's it's had its hand in in my life and in a in a couple different um serendipitous turns, but um that was certainly one of them. And and then um, you know getting the the break to open the shop was a another big one but without that background and in that hustle i think over over those 10 years where i was you know every little bit of money i i could save i squirreled it away and saved the bank money and invested in a 401k which i later liquidated and took a huge penalty on but um but it was all those things over a 10 year period just under the radar just slowly slowly grinding and grinding and saving and saving that I built a little nest egg that was able to, um, you know, take all that money, every last red cent of it, um, and put that down to, to start farmhouse wellness. And so that's what, what I did along the way, because I used to teach and I told people when I quit teaching, because like I told you, I had one too many kids and I was just like, this isn't going to work. Um, I started telling people, well, you know, I'm going to get into writing. Uh, I want to write a novel. And I kind of want to just see where that goes. And I had so many people that were just like, uh, but you've, you've got to, you went to college, you've got kids. What are, you can't just do that. I'm like, I mean, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and that parlayed into some paying writing work, which parlayed into getting my own podcast and talking to all kinds of cool people. So you got to just do you, but like what, what was the initial reaction from like friends and family when you're like, I'm taking this money that's for my retirement and I'm putting it towards a, a cannabis shop? <laughs> I think that uh, people were were pretty. Um, I think that people were pretty supportive of it. I I know that they you didn't get any. Uh, sure. a, little, a little bit. Sure? Yeah, for sure. sure. I mean, I mean, a little bit. You know, it's always it's always questionable when you want to make a significant life move like that but um but they realized that i wasn't super happy in in my you know in my day job and they also realized that the the caregiving was was established you know i mean i had been a caregiver for 10 years and had done it you know what i think semi-successfully to the point that i've been able to save money and demonstrate that it was you know a little cottage industry business so it'd be one thing if it wasn't that's coming from out of state and if it sounds like I'm throwing shade, maybe I am a little bit, but you know, there's these big, big companies that are all coming in from a lot of them from Colorado, uh, and kind of just bogging down the market with big, you know, corporate weed, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah. So you're, I mean, you're kind of the, kind of the minority here being a, a local guy, which is weird to think about from where we started, you know? It is. And it's because those barriers to entry are so high. And I think that a lot of the caregivers and, and I got hell of love for all the caregivers out there, but a lot of them were buying brand new trucks and taking wonderful vacations and just burning through the cash that they made. And that's, and, and that's, uh, choices that I think people made along the way, but I went about it a little bit differently. I always deposited all the cash in the bank. I had a really good accountant. I always paid taxes. I always filed tax returns. Did you and have, those- uh, have to seek somebody out who is specifically proficient in like cannabis accounting and banking? Cause I know that that's just recently become like a pretty hot commodity having a accountant who's well-versed in 
all these things. For sure. My accountant is a badass and one of my most trusted confidants. We've been together for since 2009, right around the time that I started growing pot. I, I just right away was like, I got to figure out, you know, what I, what I need to do with this money. Do I report it? What do I, what do I do? And working at the bank, I, you know, I was in commercial banking and, um, I just, I knew that any business that came along, uh, the bank, when they would go to look at their records, if you weren't paying taxes and if you weren't reporting profit, you had, you had no leg to stand on when it came to asking for capital. And it was just that initial introduction to that basic concept of taxes, profit, and Which financial is probably where reporting. a lot of people feel like they're getting left out of what's happening now because you know, for years there were people who were existing completely black market and you don't, you don't report exactly. market income. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people didn't. And, and that's, and that's okay too. But when it comes to when the state finally came around with the commercial framework and they said, okay, here's some pre-qualifications to get in, mm. show us your tax returns, show us your bank statements, show us your caregiver records, show us, I had all that stuff. I, I did, you know, yeah. and a lot of people did not. And then also it's show a pain us in the ass, but I mean, it makes sense on their end too, because they don't want to get caught up in anything that could be considered, you know, like class one illegal drug handlings or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. A lot of people were just afraid to do it. They were afraid to go to the bank and deposit cash. They were afraid to pay taxes. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I just did it because I thought that it was the right thing to do long term. Um, and I'm in hindsight, I'm glad that, that I did, but so it was really that kind of framework or that, that, that groundwork that allowed me to apply for the licensure system and, um, you know, allowed me to get pre-qualified with the state and then work to find a property in Grand Rapids. So yeah, it was, it was just really a trip. Um, at the time I didn't really like paying uncle Sam, you know, on, on ganja sales that I was doing in, in my basement or in a barn, but, yeah. uh, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad that I did. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's fucked up because the cannabis industry is, you, you just get taxed six ways to Sunday. Even the shop now is, is like, dude, if I got enough for a bus pass home, you know, I've, I've done a, done a good thing. Like it's, it's 280E, which is the federal tax code is, is just gnarly. It's absolutely gnarly. And it's more punitive to cannabis industry than any other industry on, on earth. Is there still much of a hassle from uh, law enforcement with, you know, raids or just threats of raids or anything like that? No, I mean, I, I, I don't, I keep it pretty low key as far as like my personal garden and my personal growing and everything. Um, but with the, with the facility and with the, the grow, I'm more worried about, you know, just people robbing it, you know, just, just, uh, just being, a uh, being yeah, susceptible. Insurance is probably tricky too with, Stuff insurance like ain't gonna do anything for you man yeah. i've got all types of insurance but they don't they won't cover it uh or if they do they're gonna make it really really difficult and they're gonna drag it out and they're gonna pay a fraction and you're gonna pay super high deductible and it's 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 really just a requirement to have it for the state you got to have a ton of insurance mm -hmm. um and so nobody's really benefiting from that except for the insurance agents. Sorry. Uh, you know, sorry to my insurance agent, you know, I love you, but, um, you know, that's, that's the reality of it. Um, yeah. so and you're not the only voice in any industry that's <laughs> says similar things. 
I, I know, man, I got to love hate with insurance, man. It's just, uh, it's, it's a side side thing, but, but yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely been an interesting, interesting road. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, kind of one of the comments that you were saying before we got started about, um, a lot of the caregivers like myself that grew clandestine and in basements and, in barns, they weren't able to get in, you know, they weren't able to get into the licensure system for maybe some of the, the hurdles that I, that I talked about before. And, and it is, it's the bigger companies that were well-organized, well-funded, had operations in other States and previously established that were able to come in and show the state, Hey, you know, I've done this before and, and here's proof. And, and those are the people that unfortunately, um, were awarded a lot of the licensure and were able to secure real estate, which is also, you know, a whole separate subject, but, um, one of the bigger, bigger challenges and barriers to entry, I think, to getting into the cannabis biz for sure. I came from a all medical background and then the recreational boom was a whole other thing, but I know there's separate weed in a weed cannabis do you do you care what people call it i mean i've heard you call no, it no. things. yeah i know weed, some people are like i prefer ganja. if you call it cannabis because it gives it more legitimacy and weed just sounds like something stoners smoke <laughs> <laughs> weed's but, cool with me yeah um so there's a set aside amount of weed that's just for medical and then a set aside amount that's just for recreational and if you run out of rec sorry this is only for the medical people what is the difference between the two outside of you know one gets tagged this is it um concentration thc concentrations is it just the way i don't know i don't know what how do you know what's going to be medical what's going to be recreational the difference between med and rec is there's a couple differences but one of them is that they originate from a, a totally licensed separate facility so um within the commercial framework, you have a medical license and then you have a recreational license. So if you apply for a medical um, facility, you can only either cultivate or process um, medical cannabis out of that facility. So that's one of the big differentiators, but then just from like a testing requirement standpoint, uh, on the grow side, it's a lot more stringent as far as the TYM, the total yeast and mold, um, thresholds for medical cannabis is 10,000 CFU or colony forming units, which is a measurement of the amount of mold and bacteria that's on cannabis. So 10,000 CFU and that threshold is really, really low. In fact, I think they're trying to, to change that and get it, get it bumped up. Um, but just because too many people are having a hard time meeting that. Oh yeah. Especially in the beginning, a lot of people had a lot of challenges getting past that. Um, you it may, I mean, real may, tight humidity controls and all those kinds of things. Yeah. You got to work at different, uh, environmental controls and, and super clean environment, super clean genetics, all those things. But, um, yeah, I see pictures of some people. It almost looks like they're, uh, you know, going into a, a room with somebody who's got some terrible, uh, contagious disease. They're just suited out. Yep. Tyvek suits and the whole nine, man, when you go in there, it's, it's sterile environment. And, 
And so it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense if you are dealing with cannabis that goes to a medical patient who potentially, you know, has cancer or other chronic illness, immunocompromised, you name it. You want that cannabis to be as clean as possible. You want it to have the least amount of mold and bacteria as possible. But I do feel it's a little bit double sided not to get too off track here. But like, I mean, there's certain amount of mold and uh, fungi just in the air that we breathe, you know, just yeah, on yeah. the strawberries that you had for breakfast or whatever, or, or just on the, the bread that you picked up at Meyer, you know, so so people are exposing themselves to uh, yeast and mold in other ways. But when you put it on cannabis and you, you fire that cannabis, that combustion that occurs, I think is where they kind of drew the line. So, um, so anyway, that is one of the big differences, 10,000 CFU on the med side, a hundred thousand CFU on the rec side. So that rec flower can have, um, 10 times as much, 10 to one, yeah. uh, a yeast mold and, and bacteria on it and still pass, um, testing and, and go to market versus, versus medical. Um, the well, other, some people have a feeling that the rec weed actually isn't as strong, which I think there are some States that say like rec weed can only be such a high concentration THC concentration. I think they do have that in other States. I'm not as well versed in other States. I think like Illinois is trying to, trying to implement something like that where there's a cap on the THC on the rec side. And, and so we, we see potent pot both on the med and rec side, but we don't have that, that kind of threshold in, in Michigan that doesn't exist. The other big one that, um, there's really two other big ones is, uh, on the edible side, the, the edibles can be go up to 200 milligrams on the medical side, and then they're capped at hundred milligrams on the recreational side. So you just get higher dose, you know, higher concentration edibles on the medical side. And still, if somebody eats 100 milligrams. It's a lot. It's a lot. I wouldn't recommend it. I'd recommend starting at like five if you've never done it before. Because yeah. I've seen people get too high off an edible and they just like sit there like, oh my God, I think I'm going to throw up. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Uh. Yeah. Low and slow, bro. Low and slow. You want to take it easy. On and don't keep eating it until it kicks in either. <laughs> give yourself an hour at least an hour to to absorb it and observe and and see if you want to dive back in for some more but yeah so 200 on the med side 100 on the rec side and then the the other big one is the um the excise tax so within prop one the the state designated 10% excise tax that's on top of the 6% Michigan sales tax. So every cannabis sale, you know, has an all in 16% tax on the rec side. Um, that's not money that goes to farmhouse. That's money that goes to, to, um, the governor, people who allow you to keep doing it. Yeah, Governor Whitmer, and then it goes to the marijuana fund, and it it gets siphoned down to the municipalities that participate. Some goes hopefully. into yeah, hopefully. Um, some goes Here's to schools. To that the government works efficiently. Yep. Some goes to to research and development. Some goes to law enforcement. But that, well, is some of that going back into like I know uh, I just read recently that there's um, what's it called like the higher learning center that's. Mm -hmm. teaching people how to grow and get into the business side of things a little bit or something like that. I don't, th I think that's privately funded. I don't think that comes from the state. That's, okay. I, I, I don't quote me on that, but I think that that's partnerships between uh, different cannabis companies okay. and that institution. The city of Grand Rapids is trying to form a nonprofit right now too, mm -hmm. but that's 
totally yeah. separate type of thing. Yeah, that's totally separate. But the city did get, you know, in its very first year, $600,000. And then I think, I mean, I'd love to see what that number is now. But uh, I believe in January, just a month ago, they, they got their second remittance. And I would imagine it's, you know, well in excess of a million dollars, which oh, yeah. I mean, is not crazy money, but it's it's still, you know, but just, hey, if you don't that, think it's yeah. much, I'll take it. Yeah, if you, yeah, <laughs> if you're gonna pave a road or do a sewer project or whatever, or, yeah. or just administer the program, you know, it's not my business what they do with it. But um, but that money does come from the excise tax that um that originates at the recreational counter. So those are the big differences between medical and recreational. I know that I'd heard people um, in the industry saying, man, let's, let's hope this doesn't go recreational. Let's just hope it doesn't go recreational because their whole thing was, then you're gonna see way more companies from outside pushing out the people from the inside. And you know, I, I don't know that I can say that they do or they don't, but it does seem odd that there's one locally owned and operated dispensary in Grand Rapids, or at least at the time that you guys opened, you were the first. I don't know if there's still, if you still are, but there's maybe one or two in Lansing. I think there's one in Saugatuck that has uh, its own little grow attached to it. But I, I mean, as far as like really getting a true local experience, why is it so hard? I mean, you've already said that there are a lot of people made bad decisions or made decisions that made them just ineligible, but even still, like there's there's local money going into lots of things. Why isn't more of it going into this? It gets back to the the framework how how they set up Prop One at the state level. So they at the state level, cannabis is legal. But yeah. Locally, it's not legal everywhere that you go. So um, they the state deferred down to the local municipality, the city, the village, the township, whatever. They said, okay, municipality, you decide. You decide if you want to have I cannabis. I like that idea of you know sending the control downward instead of upward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it makes sense to control it at the local level, but people are people and yeah. people ha are stuck in, in ways of thought. And you see this in other states, you know, California in particular. Yeah, there's kind um, of a donut of just no dispensaries in the neighborhoods around Grand Rapids, although mm -hmm. Grand Rapids is that hole where it's just boom. Tons yep. So a ton of municipalities said, you know what? Uh-uh. It's not for us or we want to wait and see or, or whatever. So you really have, I think it's like between five and 10% currently of the municipalities in Michigan that actually opted into cannabis within their jurisdiction. So what you have is a small percentage of places that allow it for business. And when you have such a small amount of opportunities, it creates a tremendous amount of demand on a small supply of places to do business. And that gets into uh, what I think is the other really big reason why a lot of um, uh, local shops aren't in play or a lot of ca uh, caregivers didn't get in is because the hunt for real estate is so fierce. If you have such a small amount of municipalities that well, are saying, just hey, this place here that you've got, I, I, I don't know if it was on the website or a different interview you did. You said it was kind of like, there was just this one little spot that met all the criteria of like, <laughs> you weren't this close to a church or a school or a whatever else. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, the city outlined, sites that were potentially suitable and that you had to be and and you could have been within uh 
certain feet of a school or a park or a playground or a substance abuse disorder, but you had to get a waiver. This particular site did not require that. And that ended up being to our benefit down the road as we went through the planning commission and, and the different licensing at the city level. But um, getting back to the the real estate itself, I mean, when 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 they came out in, I guess it would have been 2018 and they said, Hey, here's the areas that are going to be quote unquote, the green zone. It was just a mad rush. It was a complete mad rush. I mean, I, I had, like I said, a little nest egg. I was willing to gamble on it, but I mean, stuff, people were asking 50, a hundred thousand dollars sight unseen, uh, non-refundable deposits just to put a deposit down on a property that was going for five times its market value. I mean, you could have a that strip mall, like people that are going to yeah, throw yeah, down you know, you could have like, I remember looking at some of the properties on Plainfield that like normally would trade at, you know three, $400,000 for a, a, you know, a strip mall space. They want 1.5, 2 million bucks, you know, for this property. And it's like, it, it wasn't realistic. It was like hyperinflated and it all got back to all traced back to the exorbitant demand that was on for such a small amount of supply of property. So uh, farmhouse, you know, in our property was, was just kind of shit house luck and determination. You know, a few, <laughs> um, a few people had, had, passed me up along the way. And I, and I was, it was down to the 11th hour on trying to secure a, a, a property because you had to bring a property to the city in order to, to move forward with licensure. You had to have uh, a property under contract. Yeah. You want to have all your, uh, all your ducks in a row dealing mm-hmm. with any, any kind of city government. Cause they're, they're, uh, have it all ready or, <laughs> you yeah. know, it might be weeks, months before we'll give you this opportunity even again. Yeah, yeah, they they want to see that you're serious. They want to see that you um that you had the wherewithal to actually put a property under contract and and so for me it was really the only way was to get a little bit creative and so I ended up going door knocking down down this stretch of uh of West Wealthy and and there were four four houses that are within the commercial, this area's zone commercial, um, but they're residential structures, you know, people are living in the homes and it's because of the zoning, the evolution and zoning where the city said, Hey, this area is more in industrial, but before it was, it was a worker housing stock. You know, this was, this was where, um, you know, this was where very blue collar workers in the early days of Grand Rapids um, were, were living and, and, and housed back in the furniture, furniture manufacturing shops. And yeah, yeah, yep, exactly. And, and so I just went through and I just, you know, I remember it pretty vividly. It was a it was a snowy day in January and the, the licensure was due. Um, by March. So I was really, it was at the end of January. So I was really down to the 11th hour. I mean, I didn't even have a property. I mean, you had to have a full site plan, engineering work, architectural drawings, meet with the neighborhood association. I didn't have any of that. You know, I didn't even have a property under contract, literally about 45 days to go. And, uh, and I was just like, you know what, I'm not going to give up, you know? And I just, so I went down this stretch here on West Wealthy and I just went up to every door and I just knocked on it. And a couple people came to the door and a couple people didn't, but the people that did come to the door, I said, look, you know, and I just wrote a number down on a piece of paper. I was like, I'll give you this amount of money for your house. And they just kind of looked at me and just like, you know what, you're just crazy. And, (laughs) and, uh, 
and I wrote down my phone number. I was like, give me a call. You know, I, I'd like to talk to you seriously about your house. And, and I left. And then like about a week later, one of the people called me. Hey, you know, I, I got your note and, and I think it might be time for us to sell this house. I said, sure, let's, uh, let's talk about it. And it was, it was kind of a crazy stretch from there. It was about a 30 day courting period where they, um, they didn't, they were real. it was really touch and go on the communication. They didn't want to answer the phone. They didn't want to meet. Um, and I didn't, I was running out of time, you know, I was running out of time. So I, I didn't have the time. So I still plowed ahead on the engineering, you know, I was burning thousands and thousands of dollars on, you know, queuing up an engineer to draw up a site plan, queuing up an architect to do architectural drawings, going to the neighborhood association saying, Hey, I got this property, you know, or this is where I'm going to do business. I didn't even have it under contract, you know, technically. Um, but I was in, you know, good faith negotiations with this guy. Um, and it was really down to the wire. It was February 22nd. It was February 22nd and I, and he, he just wasn't answering his phone, you know, for about like two, three week period after he had said that he would sell me the house. And I was like, oh man, you Doesn't know, like very much confidence. Oh my, I know I was super stressed <laughs> about it. And I had already spent like, you know, approaching about $30,000 on, on professional services and fees. And it was crazy. You know, I was like, what, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, this, I'm about to just completely, you know, screw myself. So anyway, I call him up and, and he finally answers the phone and he's like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sell you this house, man. And I was just like, what? You know, like, there's no way I was like, dude, just like, like, just don't, you know, and, I was, and he just like hung up the phone. So I just, I went downstairs and I had some cash from being a carrier. I just grabbed as much cash as I could. I grabbed my wife. We had a, you know, baby at the time. She was about two years old and, uh, and we got in the car. I went to the corner store. I grabbed a six pack of beer and I showed up on the dude's doorstep, you know, and I like knocked on the door and I was like, Hey man, like we got to talk, you know? And I just pulled all the money out of my pocket and just was like, look, dude, like I want to buy this house from you. And he was like, He's like, come inside, you know, come inside and, and, uh, came in there with my wife and my kid and like six pack of Budweiser busted open the six pack and my wife's a licensed realtor. And, and we, we, you know, I threw down the money on the table and, and we signed the paperwork right there. And I believe it was February 22nd and it was, um, you know, about 30 to 20 to 30 days before the, the full application was due to the city. And, uh, it was crazy. It was literally one of the craziest days. Um, I'll never forget it. You know, we drank the six pack, like a a lot of sleep in those couple of weeks, man. (laughs) Drank the six pack in like 20 minutes, signed the paperwork left with the contract because you needed that contract, you know, you needed to show that you had a property under, under contract, but all of that, man, it gets back to your question that, you know, it was complete shithouse luck. Like it was, it was, it was lucky that somebody answered the door. It was lucky that the property was semi affordable. It was lucky as hell that he came to the door and we ended up working out a deal. It was all those things combined that made it unique and made it the only possible property, I believe in Grand Rapids that could have been 
possible for somebody like me or a local or somebody who didn't have a million dollar slush fund that could go down 28th street and say, Oh yeah, you know, here's this traditional strip mall building that they want two, three, $4 million for. And I'm going to put down a hundred thousand dollar deposit on it. You know I mean? Like I don't have any shame in saying it, but like I bought farmhouse wellness for 125,000 bucks. You know, I don't think anybody in grand rapids got into, uh, the cannabis industry for that amount of money, you know, but there was zero way I could have done it had it not been for, um, the property that it was this, that, and the other thing lining up the way that it did. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, to answer your question, that's the, the reason why a lot of, a lot of folks weren't able to get in is simply the, the real estate is such a challenge. that proven to be a big draw i mean i know that was the reason i was like i want to check this place out just the idea that it was putting money back into you know grand rapids essentially not not just the the people that it hires but everything about it that i'm not going to send money to you know because you got like trying to remember the guy's name he used to be the speaker of the house and he was mr we know cannabis and nobody that smokes cannabis is a good person and now he is like the ceo of one of those companies out in colorado it's just i don't know i'd rather keep it local and kind of know where it's going and be able to say who who who's in charge around here and they'll be like oh he's in the back room instead of like oh he's in his office in some other town you know so is that sorry that's a really long way to ask that question but do you, do you find that people are like, hey, man, I wanted to go to the local place? We do. We get people that come through that want to support us because we're locally owned and, yeah. and we are, you know, I'm the 100% owner of Farmhouse Wellness. There's no, you know, uh, veil or like boardroom of people behind me or people that own the real estate or fragmented owners or out of town owners. It's just, it's just me, man. It's just a one man show. Um, we've got a bunch of people that are from grand rapids working in our shop i'm from grand rapids um even yeah one of them born. one time saw me <laughs> when i pulled up to the curbside and they're like hey man were you at meyer last night and i was like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so i mean it yeah it, it is cool it's it's cool we get people say that all the time and and i'm very involved i'm here every day just about and um especially in the beginning really bootstrapping it to get this thing off the ground you know and well and not um, just that too i want to i don't want to downplay the community involvement of things here too either but like the house looks very nice i'm guessing it didn't look like that when you bought it no it was actually like semi-condemned you know they were three years past due on the real estate taxes it had uh, multiple multiple thousands of dollars of um uh, citations and and violations on it for um just just being non-capped and and uh, zoning violations and stuff so That's fun so we came in and i think we we really slapped some lipstick on the pig and i think it <laughs> it uh it definitely uh is an improvement you know i mean it's still it's still a home that was built in 1890 it's hella old and rickety but but we brought it up to commercial code and did all the things to make it look pretty and um and so yeah i think that it's, looks nice it, the area in the back looks nice the fences painted there Thanks, man. Um, and I don't know if that mural was down there before, but it just seems like this whole little area right now, just from a, a curbside appeal, you know, if you were walking down, you'd be like, man, this is, this is a pretty, 
you know, attractive neighborhood block. Do people within the community seem pretty happy to have you guys here? Or do they say like, hey, thanks for planting these trees around here. Thanks for doing this and that to kind of, like you said, put some lipstick on this on the place. I think so. I think that um, we've been really, we've been really engaged with the neighborhood and the residents in this area. And well, I, try I saw to be, right around the holidays, it looked like you guys had uh, uh, grocery bags out out in the back too. Was that you guys? We did a turkey giveaway. We gave a hundred turkeys away for Thanksgiving, and and that's a really big part of what I want farmhouse to be. Um, we we want to do is you don't want to just take the the community's money, but you want to put something back too. Absolutely. And, and I really have high hopes for this stretch, but a lot of, uh, a lot of the work that we're doing is, is thanks to, uh, an urban planner that I met along the way. Her name's Lynnae Wells and she owns a, a planning firm and she was the person that helped me with, um, our presentation. We first met at a neighborhood association and, um, she was one of the first people that helped me along the way as a professional. Um, and I'll never forget it, you know, but we, uh, we've, we've been doing business ever since. And it was really, uh, I knew that I, I was out of my league as far as community engagement and planning and urban development and all that stuff. Um, and it's well, somebody I who mean, does something that you do. It's, it's good to hear that you've got a control on your ego to say, there are some things that are just over my head because, I think in any creative venture, but especially something that involves this many other people, you have to be able to know when you can, not just can, but need to rely on somebody else for their knowledge or whatever that they've got that you don't have. For sure. No. And, and, and I knew that the first time that I met her, that she was super well-versed at, at community engagement and, and really good with city officials and all the things that I don't really um, pride myself in being an expert at. Um, so that was a really big key to making this this whole business and this venture possible um but uh, since then we've been able to continue um doing business together and w one of the things that she's been been really instrumental in is spearheading the the development and the community engagement um here on west wealthy you know through the tree planting through the artist call that we um were able to commission like seven different uh, works of art along West Wealthy. We're doing some uh, streetscape enhancements this spring at Front and Wealthy. That intersection really needs a lot of love. Um, we want to make it more mob mobile, uh, accessible to people. And we re really just want this area to be nicer um, than it was before Farmhouse Wellness came in. And mm. I think we're already seeing signs of that, as you noted, you know, just some of the paintings that we have up, yeah. some of the local works of art, the trees. Um, these are all parts of like, I mean, I've heard her say this before, but the broken window uh, theory, like if you drive down a street and you see broken windows, it just, you believe that nobody's really taking care of their property and it, and it leads to um, potentially further neglect in that area. But when you see somebody who's putting love and attention back into public and private spaces like this, I think it creates a little bit of momentum for other 
other uh, community partners to take note and to see that, hey, this person cares about what they're doing here and maybe we want to join in on that. So that's really the work that Lene and I are doing together and I'm really stoked on it. I'm super excited for the future of it yeah. um, because I do think that there's just endless um, community engagement projects that you can do and and um, and I'm really excited to spearhead some of those with her, you know, going down the road, but like, um, but yeah, we've got some other fun projects planned for this spring. And so we're just getting started, man, you know, this is, uh, but it does, it takes a commitment from the business owner to be able to reinvest funds back into, uh, the neighborhood and, mm -hmm. and also to remain, uh, committed to engagement with the, the local residents and community partners, whether that's a business owner or, your, your ward commissioner or the city commission or the neighborhood association, all those things. It's all, it's all part of the, the, the puzzle and it's all part of, um, you know, the ethos of farmhouse and trying to give back. That's awesome. Um, just based on the time here, we'll start moving towards a close on this. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, from, uh, talking to the few people I know in the industry, it seems like kind of the vision that a lot of places have moving forward dispensaries i mean um is that they want to have like their own signature lines you know signature strains and uh so people that are you know going out winning awards for the the strains that they're creating are being approached by different places saying like hey we kind of want to have uh a place where you know we'll have all this but we this is the only place where you can get the farmhouse Maui Waui or you know whatever it is for is sure is that something that you guys are thinking about with the with the grow having stuff that's like only right here or are you guys growing stuff that are um you know longtime favorites a little of both what's going on there yeah for sure man I'm super pumped about the grow I'd love to you know if you're curious we can walk over there and show you we're at like the five yard line man it's been a <laughs> been about a two three year project so I'm really excited to get that facility yeah, for people open. who don't know just to grow one plant from the time you drop a seed hypothetically and you don't do all the other things like taking cuts to it you just drop a seed and then you have flowers that you can cut it takes months months not just weeks but I'm trying to think what maybe 14 to 16 weeks for depending on the type of plant full cycle it, it can yeah 12 to 12 to 15 weeks depending on how long the the plants are in their immature stage and generally plants take 60 to 70 days to flower and then if you're um if you're growing from seed, absolutely. Yeah. 12 to 14 weeks. It can take a while, but this building's just been on ice, man, just in construction and in vacant for the last three years. So we're super excited to get it going, super excited to get, um, to get it generating, you know, something, a product. And, and we do, I, I really do want to be able to provide some of the the nostalgic strains that you see and, and that are consistently asked for the diesels or the gorilla glues or the um, Jack Herrera or, you know, strawberry cough or whatever that there is a certain amount of demand for those products, but you know, those are also accessible out in the marketplace. So we're able to go out and get those um, from other growers or other processors. I really want to have products here that are super unique to farmhouse only. Yeah. Um, one of the big things that makes us unique is, is having 
you know, uh, proprietary products. And at the end of the day, cannabis shops are relatively all the same. I mean, you can go to get a vape cart from here. You can go down the street and get that same vape cart for, you know, plus or minus five bucks. And it comes down to, you know, who you want to support and, and hopefully they have some unique products and good customer service, but the grow, uh, just over the last, really heavily over the last five years have been collecting seeds and, and paying a decent, you know, pretty penny for different genetics. So I've got what I think is a really nice stash of proprietary genetics that are bred by some of the more reputable breeders in the industry. And I'm really excited to pop those from seed, explore the treasure chest of genetics that's yeah. in there, have proprietary products for farmhouse wellness, and I will not sell it to any other store in Grand Rapids. So if you're interested in getting you know, something that's unique, locally grown, craft grown, come check us out. We hope it's, you know, operational in the next one to three months or so. Just a tremendous amount of paperwork and red tape to get it open, but we're, sure. we're almost there, man. And I think that that'll really help us, you know, by having some stuff that the next guy down the street doesn't have. And that's also grown with a ton of love and intention. Yeah. And that's the big thing too, because A, people are already paying a pretty good chunk of money compared to what you could grow it for yourself, but you're paying for somebody putting in those weeks of time to grow it, find the best ones, clone those, but yada, 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 yada. But on top of just that, um, well, no, I guess that that's most of it right there. But um, I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, Sorry. you're straight, man. No. It, it, It'll come so in a second. No. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to have some, some unique strains that are unique to farmhouse. We're not going to sell them, uh, outside of Grand Rapids. And then what I think is really going to set us apart is that I'm really not interested in selling our product for a high price. Like I really want it to be as accessible and as affordable as possible to the consumer so that they can experience quality cannabis without having to take it through the nose, man. There you, you go. Know? Because I mean, depending on where you go and I'm not going to say anything about anybody, what they charge, because like we're talking about what I was thinking is where I got lost in the details was it takes a long time to grow cannabis period, but to find really good and to grow it the right way, make sure that everything is where it's supposed to be all all steps along the way it takes a lot of work. So it's worth paying a little bit more for. But if you can lower your overhead growing your own, but also control all the things in the quality department, because, you know, if, if you ask not just people that work here, but anywhere, hey, tell me about how they grow that. Oh, uh, do you know if it was grown yeah. indoors or outdoors? Uh, probably outdoor. I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you don't know if it was grown organically, what kind of things they were putting into it. If it was grown indoors or outdoors, some people have a preference. Some people are like, I don't want any bird poop in my weed. <laughs> but I, I'll still smoke it if it was grown outdoors. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Just, just to know and to be able to answer some questions about where does it come from knowledgeably, I think would be very attractive to, uh, to me as a consumer anyway. Absolutely. And Farmhouse is just a small locally owned shop. We um, we do have a relatively low amount of overhead, I think, compared to other operations. And then the fact that I'm, I was a caregiver and was a grower uh, will be a tremendous first, benefit. First, before you were in the business side of it, like that's you, you come from the 
the spirit of the people that kept <laughs> kept the cannabis culture alive even when all the forces were flowing against it. Yeah, so I won't have to go out and hire a head grower, you know, and that'll just again be able to keep our cost low. And those guys, man, those guys are like uh, French trained sommeliers. You get a, <laughs> you get a good one. Yeah, <laughs> they can be uh, they can be a unique bunch, the growers for sure. But um, so I won't have to, you know, thankfully uh, have to go out and at, re- at least right out of the gate hire you know, a super expensive head grower and, and that'll be able to just keep our costs down. And we're We plan to pass those cost savings on to the customer or patient, you know, through, um, through low prices at the retail side with quality cannabis that I don't, I think it's that combination of, of factors that'll be unrivaled in Grand Rapids. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, man. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to see what, uh, what you guys have got going on and I'm sure everyone else will too. So, Thank you for coming on. Um, we'll do follow-ups in the future too, just to maybe maybe check in with you on the phone for 15 minutes when everything is fully operational and you can give everybody a shout, let them know where to get it again. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for coming on the show. Let me uh, hang out in your space here. Yeah, dude. Thank you so much for the invite and coming and checking us out, man, and supporting the shop along the way. I really appreciate it seeing you out there and and uh, it's always a pleasure, man. See you. So thank you again for coming through. All right, everybody. That was Casey Cornolia, founder, owner, and general manager of the only locally owned and operated dispensary in Grand Rapids Farmhouse Wellness. Check those guys out. Look in the show notes for their website, all the places on social media where you can hit them up, and the address. And for God's sake, if you're going to smoke cannabis, get it from Farmhouse. Why not? All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Check us out on social media. And uh, I'll see you next time. Mwah. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, 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 man. Weird, right?